I am Joe Delahunty. I am Gresham's Professor of Law. And tonight I am going to be talking about equality and diversity. So the question is, is merit reflected in practice and status? Does the judiciary represent the society it deserves? And it comes with two health warnings. The first is that this is just a summary of the lecture that there is in hard copy down in front of you. Secondly, that all the statistics are associated with a separate appendix. I've simply tried to summarise them. And the third health warning comes directly from me, because as a white middle-aged woman standing behind a podium, can I just say that if I promise not to cough, will you please not give me a P45? Okay, so, um, when I posted this lecture up on social media, it had the biggest take-up replies within seconds that I've had of all of those I've done so far. And this is just a sample. The first one you need to squint is, it says on Twitter, when I posed those questions, the answer was, inequality is far more about class, uni, school and gender. That was a response of one of the Twitter followers I've got. Can I just pause there to say, it's quite striking that when you put something on Twitter, which is talking about equality from a woman's perspective, you get a man replying, saying that's less important than class, university, school and gender. Just saying. LinkedIn, a uh, question there was, um, what about black and ethnic minority lawyers don't see many at the top? Now, that is a really pertinent question. And it's one that I uh, don't feel I'm qualified to answer. The lecture I am giving you tonight is based on my personal experience as a white woman from a working class family who went to a comprehensive. It's based on my experiences at the family bar and being a barrister and still managing to succeed to remain married and have three children, which places me in quite a small niche group. But it goes without saying that that which I speak about is only from my perspective. It will be arrogant and discourteous to start talking about the greater disadvantages there are for those that come from the black, Asian and minority ethnic community. So please see this lecture in that light. So why do I feel qualified to give this talk? Um, it is because from my background, there was no knowledge at all of what the bar offered. From my background, there was no experience from anyone staying at school beyond the age of 16. From my background, there was no possibility that university was considered as a career option because I should have gone out to earn money as soon as I could do. And why did that change? It changed because I had the huge fortune to be the child of an incredible woman who had some nous around her and who had been one of, a, one of the children from the 1950s to pass the 11 plus but not to be allowed to go to the 11 plus schools because she was one of three and it would feel, felt to have been a wasted place. But she carried that intelligence into her working life and in addition to being a cleaner in the morning and a secretary during the day and doing piecework in the evening, she was canny enough to want more for her daughter than she has had herself and she looked around the office she worked in. She identified that all the solicitors appeared to be quite well off. She identified that they were male. Not very much we could do about that. But what she did is she looked at their CVs and she saw that they had all gone to Oxbridge. So my mum looked up Oxbridge. My mum looked up what colleges might be prepared to take a punt on someone that was going to a comprehensive school. And she identified a particular college, St Anne's, and she put me in a mini and she drove me down to Oxford and we pulled up and she pushed me out the door and she said, go on, go and ask. So I did. And I went up to the porters and said, I'd like to come here, please. Can I see the principal? 
And the porters rang up to the principal. The principal said yes. I went up to the principal. I had a chat. She told me what Oxford could offer. I felt encouraged. And I came back and told my comprehensive school I wanted to apply to Oxford and could they download the details for the exam. Now, all of that sequence of possibilities is based on one woman's vision for what she wanted for her daughter, and it's based on a sequence of chance encounters with kind people that literally let me through the door. But for the fact I got into Oxford through that route, I seriously query whether I will be here now to tell the tale as a senior silk who's also a bencher, who's also a part-time judge. Because what needs to be said plainly and simply at the outset of this lecture is the greatest barrier there is to becoming a successful barrister isn't gender, it's social inequality. Okay, so with that in mind and with that cheery spirit, let's turn to the lecture itself, shall we? So what we have here is a picture of two inspiring women from the early 1900s. You have a picture here of Miss Bebb and, you, and um, of her colleague. Now these two women were bright enough to want to come to the bar sought to come to the bar, but were refused admittance because they were women. They simply weren't permitted to join an Inns of Court. And that was back in 1914. And why weren't they allowed to do so? It's because they had the misfortune to be born before this seminal act came into force. This is a Sex Disqualification Removal Act, which received the royal assent, um, became law on the 23rd of December 1919. Until then, however right you were, you couldn't come to the bar because your gender barred you from that possibility. So what have we, where have we got to in the last 100 years? Okay, let's snapshot time. Barrister, I think of as a gender-neutral word. But it's not gender-neutral, at least it wasn't until 1995, because you were judged as a barrister as a woman on your appearance and you were not allowed to come into court if you weren't appropriately attired, and that meant you weren't wearing a skirt or a dress. Trousers were not permitted. If you went into court wearing trousers, you might say this. My lord, may I address you? And they would say, I'm sorry, I can't hear you. And it wouldn't be because you would be talking very slowly. It wouldn't be because they were deaf as a doorpost. It would be because they declined to hear you because you were inappropriately dressed. So, let's think what the option were. Skirts or trousers? It wasn't until the Association of um, Women Lawyers campaigned and took the matter to the Lord Chief Justice that those rules were changed. So, May 1995 was the first point at which women were allowed to trouser up and to go into court. And if we're talking about icons and correct imagery here, that young woman on the right is the youngest person ever to pass the bar exams. She was just 18. So if we're looking for the way we should be looking at the future, that's a, that's a role model to follow. So other snapshots in time. Miss Alison Russell, QC, as she was at the bar, became a High Court judge. I would have liked the fact that when she was appointed and came to the public attention, it was a fact that she wasn't a pro product of Oxbridge that had read the, met, met the headlines, not the fact that she was to be known as Ms. Russell as a High Court judge. But there we are. What else do we have? Another judge, 
Uh, this time it's Deborah Taylor, who is the principal presiding judge at Southwark Crown Court, a seminal appointment because it marked the first time someone of her gender had been appointed to that role. And what did she do within a month of being appointment, appointed? She identified the fact that there were three roving rooms in Southwark Crown Court, but the biggest, the largest, the one that was right next to the courtroom, was reserved for men. Now, this was 2017, so we're not going too far along, and it was she, the first woman appointed in that role of seniority, that decreed that that was no longer to be the case. The generous room, the largest room, the essential room where barristers go to robe up, and that's when they talk about what's going to go on in the case. That's when they start carving up outcomes. That was a room that was denied access to by women, which meant they couldn't participate in the negotiations. So they could often go into court unaware of what deals have been struck up between their male opposing counsel. But Deborah Taylor was having none of that. She changed the rules. And why did she do it? She opened access to the, the um, common room, the bar room, for a number of reasons, but I've highlighted the third because I think it's the most significant. It reinforces that gender should play no part in the role or status of a barrister. So, what else? Times they are a-changing. This is Brenda Hale. We're allowed to call her that because she makes herself so accessible to us, whether we are barristers, whether we are students, or whether we're members of the public, that she has become an icon of accessibility and of strength and striving to achieve despite gender and declaring her gender with pride. So this marks the point at which, on the I'd like to this week, your seat on the bench as president of the Supreme Court of Right. She is the first president of the most important court in our land, the Supreme Court. It was a seminal appointment. It was something that marked a sea change in the way we were seeing law conducted and transacted. So you might have thought it would have been better if when the listings hadn't come up announcing the first case in which she was to preside... Look carefully there. What can you see? Lord Hale. I'm sure it's a typo, but nonetheless, it may say more than we'd like to believe about the way things still operate. So let's move on, uh, which is why uh, one comes to the bar. And so it's a little bit of me time, just to explain again. Why did I come to the bar? I came to the bar because I was someone who was radicalised through the Thatcher years. I was at bar school when we had the minor strike. I was at the bar school when we had the election in 1983 that meant that Margaret Thatcher totally trounced um, Foot. And it was also the year that we had three um, important politicians come into our world. Tony Blair was elected for Sedgefield, Gordon Brown for Dunfermline, and Jeremy Corbyn for Islington North. They were turbulent times. The IRA had bombed the Brighton Hotel where the Conservatives were having um, their... Um, conference, we had the Battle of Orgreave, and we had the Brixton riots started by the shooting of Cherry Gross. Now that made me someone who was very engaged with the rights of the individual against the state, and that was why I wanted to come to the bar. I was a child of a comprehensive system, I wanted to make a difference, I'd had the brains and the opportunity to do so, coming to the bar was what I wanted to do. 
The question is, was my motivation any different from those of our current generation? And broadly, it's not. Why do people want to become barristers now? They want to come because they want the challenge. They want to come because they want to make a difference to society, and they want to come because of the earning potential and the work flexibility. Interestingly, female barristers are significantly more likely to have attended state schools than men. An interesting statistic, there's no explanation for it, but it's one I think that's worth identifying. And keep that in mind, because when I, in a while, come to tell you about the imbalance in the gender allocation of silk, which is the status of Queen's Council, just keep that in mind, that the greater proportion of women coming to the bar are from a state school, and I'll come to tell you why that's relevant later on. So let's start off with the good news. Admission rates to the bar. There's a fair selection procedure because there's equality codes that are applied. There's an equality code of conduct which strengthens the way in which silent discrimination and unconscious bias should be spotted, eliminated, and therefore at the point of entry to the profession there should be no gender barrier to succeeding. And it works because when you look at the data, at the point of admission to the bar, it's 50-50 gender equality. And that's because the Bar Council takes this seriously. Career breaks, fair recruitment, flexible working, parental uh, uh, leave, guidance on sexual harassment, it's all there. Every chambers knows what they've got to do. But let's identify whether they do. This is what happens in practice, despite those guidelines. What you've got there is grey. That's the non-compliant chambers. You've got the blue fully compliant, and then you've got the can-do-better. So there's no excuse, because everything's there, it's just it's not applied, and that's partly a product of the fact that in chambers we are simply a collective of self-employed individuals who gather together as a body for the better way in which to manage our individual businesses. But we are a very invisible organisation unless we choose to participate in the main, and therefore what we say we do and what we do can be two very different things. I can't do anything but to agree with uh, this assessment of the Bar Standards Boards itself from 2016. And you can read it there yourself. There's little evidence of wide, there is little evidence of widespread non-compliance with the requirement to have policies in place. However, awareness of the policies is low and the findings suggest that in many of the cases the implementation of the policies falls short of what might be expected. We need to do better. So that's the start point. What are the issues of concern? Harassment, bullying, work allocation and locker room banter. Harassment is a significant area of concern. Let me just get the statistics because it might make a difference to you. Of those women surveyed, and there was a high turnout in terms of responding to the questionnaires, two in five female barristers surveyed by the BSB said that they suffered sexual harassment. And that is a figure that hasn't changed over the last 15 years. Locker room banter, the BSB recognised that there was continuing inappropriate banter, their terminology, and they identified a generational issue in that being a problem, said it was changing but was slow to change. Bullying... 22% of women reported um, of experiencing bullying compared to 9% of men. 
it's not something that is new to our generation. When I came to the bar in, in the 1980s, um, I was sexually harassed. I was booked in to a double bedroom with my pupil master on more than one occasion when we were working away without my consent or say-so. And it was left to me to go to the receptionist to explain the difficulty and demand to have a room. Uh, experiences such as I had when helping to fight the fight for the trade unions, I went into a full conference room where I was a pupil, and because there were no seats, one of the clients there suggested I might want to sit on his knee and spread his legs. And the only reaction from my pupil master was to laugh. And it was me who was made a bencher in 2011 and loved the thrill of being called master by lots of middle-aged white men, except that after I was called and after I'd done my speech and I was feeling quite good about the buzz, I went into the retiring room and because I was dressed in a white shirt and black trousers, the dozy gentleman there just waking for his afternoon tea asked me where his was because he'd mistaken me for the waitress. So there we are. There are some things you can change and some things that you can't change slowly and some things that need to have changed now because the consequences are for women at the bar this. The bar has a serious problem with retaining the women of excellence that come to it at the point of their call and that is simply not acceptable. As we can see here, the, stati the, sta the, the statistics are troubling. You start off at 50-50, as I'll show you in a minute. But by the time you get to 8 to 21 years, the de the, those who stay at the bar are starting to drop off. And then there's a similarly steeper reduction when you get to the senior and junior bands. So let me just explain for those who haven't come to any of my lectures before. When you come to the bar, you're a baby barrister, you're a pupil. You serve your apprenticeship, which is what the pupilage is, and then you seek a permanent place in chambers, and that's called your tenancy. You then officially start your practice as a junior barrister, and you remain a junior until you become a QC, a silk. But within that junior band, you can be a junior junior and you can be a senior junior. So what you're doing is taking in young women and looking at why it is that from 5 to 15 years and plus, we suddenly lose that 50-50 balance that we had on the mission. And why could that be? Maternity and parental leave... Female barristers report that taking maternity leave has a negative impact on work allocation, career progression and income. 48% thought they were treated less favourably. And that's relevant in terms of retaining women at the bar for these reasons. It's a matter of fact that women at the bar, if they are in a heterosexual relationship, are more likely to be those who take on the burden of childcare. Female barristers above a certain point of call, if they remain, are more likely to be single or divorced over the age of 45. Thirdly, women, there's a higher proportion of women practising in legal aid areas of common civil law, crime and family in particular, and that is where the government cuts to legal aid that started in 2011-2012 have had a massive impact. So you put those three factors together, together with work allocation issues, a lack of transparency, and the fact that work flexibility is not achievable in practice because if you tell a solicitor you might be available for two days but they want someone who's there all the time or they're worried that your two days or three days may not be compatible for a trial and the trial could last from five, then you're not going to get the brief necessarily. And this is what the figures show. So look, 50-50 studying for the Bar Council Awards. 50-50 coming to the Bar. 
50-50, getting pupillage. So there's nothing there that indicates that women are not as bright as men. Five years of call, slight dip, 56-44. This is when it kicks in, progression. 15 years of call, 71% men, 29% women. And then when you look to see what happens at the next stage, only 13% of women become silks, and that's taking it from a smaller pool. If you were looking for parity with those who could actually apply, you'd be looking nearer to 30%. So, words of Brenda Hale coming back into play again, who's had cause to speak about this for a number of years. As she said, of course, some women can have it all. Some women who've got supportive partners, some women who've got a private practice, some women who've got a private income, some women who can afford a nanny. So many combination of reasons. But just as in her experience in the 1970s, for a woman to come to the bar with that package of support was an exception, and so it remains today. As was clear here, the Bar Standards Board have taken very seriously the drop in um, the retention rate for women, and they've particularly looked at what the impact is when it comes to applying for silk. Look at this quote. Looking at the compounding effects of these variables, three-quarters of senior practitioners in chambers who went to fee-paying schools, Oxbridge, and achieved first-class degrees are QCs. So that's what identifies your success rate rather than your gender at present. And that comes back to the point I was making about social mobility. As Elena Kennedy said, one of my other icons, as in other professions, there's a glass ceiling for women, which means that getting to the top floor involves a detour out through the window, up through the drainpipe, rather than a direct route through the charted corridors of power. We're not talking about glass ceiling here. We're talking about a labyrinth before you get the ladder up to the, up to the ceiling with a hammer to break through. It is a significant issue. And why does it matter? Why does it matter to any of us that this is happening? It matters not simply because it's not fair, but because this is happening to our judiciary, who are there to represent and serve the society that they make decisions over. Chart here, I know it's complicated. Just look at, just look at the bare bones. All you need to identify is that when you look at the Supreme Court at the top, can you see? You look then at the Court of Appeal, and you look at the High Court, think of those three as the pinnacle, the feeders, for those who make the most critical decisions in our lives. Beneath that, you've got the Crown Court, the Family Court, Magistrates and County Court, and to the side, you've got various tribunals. That is a graph you need to bear in mind, because this is who are making the decisions for us who may come across each of these um, particular tribunals. Let's start at the best position. So deputy district judges in the MAGs, 30%. Same in district judges. County court, can you see that? We're doing quite well because we've got 30 to 35% of female successful applicants there. Look at where it starts to drop, though. Recorders, that's someone like me. Okay? A recorder means that I am a full-time barrister, but I don't want to give up being self-employed and being independent in my practice in order to become a full-time judge. So I become a recorder, which is a part-time judge in itself. This is when the drop-off starts to happen, and it's a symbol of how few women 
how not enough women who've got the capacity and qualities and skills to do so actually apply to become recorders, and there's a, a less uh, a proportion of appointment between those that do. And that's significant because it's the likes of us who are then likely to be applying for appointment to the higher courts. Deputy Masters, District Registrars, 10% female. High Court Judges, 20%. Law Justice of Appeal, 20%. Supreme Court, 1. That was Brenda. Heads of Division, 0. Now that has changed this year because we have not only um, Baroness Hale as being the um, lead of the Supreme Court, but now we've also got um, Lady Black. So that number at least is positive in going forward. But nonetheless, I cannot believe that anyone looking at those figures should feel anything other than that. Because that is just not acceptable. Brenda Hale again. And I don't apologise for using her words. The reason she is so much of an icon to us is because she has been a loud, proud and very successful feminist for the last, the last three decades. And we need women like that to call it like it is. Because otherwise we are not hearing the stories as they should be told, we're hearing them as we would like them to be. But Brenda Hale is someone who goes outside of the restrictions of her courtroom. She goes to universities, she goes to schools, she goes and gives speeches. And she is someone who is prepared to try to make law accessible. And making law accessible means you tell it like it is in the environment in which you serve the public that you are proud um, to represent. So what she says is, it bothers me that women who know or ought to know that they are as good as men, but who won't apply for fear of being appointed because they are women. Well, why are they feeling that? She says she never had that issue back in the 70s when it was okay to be a feminist. And she says it's not okay to feel that now because people need to be those who are prepared to be the symbols of success for others to follow. And what's more, she says, even if she was appointed, in part because she was a woman, so what? Because in fact, what she's done is a damn fine job while she's been up there and anyone that doubted her capacity in the first place has got nothing to criticise now. So she identified the risk and the challenges facing the judiciary and effectively she was saying back in 2016, I think this was, 2015, there will be six vacancies in the Supreme Court between September 16 and December 18. If we do not manage a much more diverse court in the process of filling them, we ought to be ashamed of ourselves and so we should. And what's more, it's not something that only women should be talking about, nor is it if the press would like to report it. The retiring judge of the Supreme Court, that uh, from whom Brenda Howell is now replacing, said that because there was a lack of strategy, both in judicial appointments and at the bar, to identify and address this problem, our judiciary is male, white, educated, comes from a public school, from an upper, middle, or middle-class background. So why does it matter? It matters... Because unless we identify where the barriers to success are within the profession, and because of the longevity of the sitting times of the judges, you will end up with an increasingly narrow pyramid from which you can try to make changes to those who make decisions. And it's important because if we don't change it, there will be less respect for the law and the judicial lawmakers who hand it down because the judiciary must represent a fair society if it is going to gain, earn and retain the respect of the public. It doesn't happen as of right. 
So the Bar Council Diversity Committee, the JSA, are very aware of what needs to be done. They know it. It's the question of whether they can achieve the change necessary in order to do so. What are they doing? So let's give you some positive news, right? So positive news. Um, the Judicial Diversity Committee in 2017 identified that there should be better ways of trying to identify people from outside of this very narrow pyramid that I've spoken about at the bar to try to encourage them to come and sit as, part, as a judge as a career move. So what they've implemented is work shadowing. So October 17 to March 18, there's an opportunity to shadow a High Court judge. Two days, gives an insight, it gives a window. Workshops, as you see here, November 17, in order effectively to talk people into understanding what the role of a judge is and whether they have the qualities to try to exceed or to apply. May I just emphasise, though, that having gone through these programmes, it doesn't mean to say that the barrier to appointment is any less, because one needs to have quality of excellence in those who make these decisions. But what it's doing is effectively extending an invitation to those that don't come from this narrow pyramid within the bar to say, maybe you could do that. And that's a very important point. I would never have thought of applying to become a recorder if, in my chambers I was then at Garden Court, I wasn't sharing a room with someone who was herself a DJ, a district judge, who asked me why I wasn't sitting, and I was gobsmacked. Because it simply had not occurred to me that someone like me, from my background, could be a judge. I was really confident with being a brief, because I am competitive, I work to deadlines, I manage stress, I like to win, and I'm unemployable. So in fact I've got nowhere else to go, because no one's ever told me what to do, how to do, or when to do it. So there's actually one place that would take me, and that was the bar. But however confident I was as being a barrister, and I always intended to become a silk, it had never occurred to me that someone like me could be a judge until another woman said, why not? And so I did, and I am. But it shows the benefit of extending the hand of opportunity to those who are around you, because we assume too much that that external veil of confidence, which means we perform in court and in chambers, actually indicates the extent of knowledge that we are better than we might be, and maybe we should give it a punt to have a try. But women generally, according to the statistics the Bar Council have, don't apply, one, because they don't think it's for them, two, because they won't apply until they're nearly damn sure confident they're going to get it, and thirdly, because there's still a lower take-up rate in appointment even when they do. So, what else is being done to change that seminal, significant role of being a recorder? Well, Section 9.4, forgive me if I lapse into section speak for you, it is explained in the notes, but section 9.4 and section 9.1s are the section by which recorders can sit as deputy high court judges. It's a rung into that upper echelon I was talking about, but the distinction in 2017 was for the first time something called a 9.4 competition was opened which was the first opportunity being given to those who didn't actually have any formal sitting experience to apply. And the intention was that it would try to gather in those who hadn't already made that move and trying to get them before they came disillusioned or effectively looked elsewhere. Section 9.1s is a classic appointment route for those who are going to be fast-tracked to the High Court if they wish to go. And what's being looked at now is direct entry for High Court judiciary by looking at academics and non 
traditionally self-employed barristers, so um, self-employed barristers, and also in terms of appointment, looking at potential. So do they have the potential to gain those skills rather than marking them as to what skills they have at the point they are applying? I commend reading the work of justice to you, and if I can identify what their remit is... Justice is an all-party law reform and human rights organisation which works to strengthen the justice system. They are an effective advocate comprised of a number of illuminaries between the academic field, with the uh, judiciary, with the employed barristers and with the self-employed roots. And they are very aware of what's happening in terms of the loss of talent. So prior to the judicial statistics coming out, I think it was in June of this year, they had already had the initiative to set up a a judicial diversity working party in order to understand why our judiciary was not attracting, and if it was attracting, not appointing, as many women and BAME candidates as it should be. I'll come back to that report in a moment, but I don't want to move on to why their, why their material is so valuable without explaining, in my view, why it is. And it's because, as Brenda Hale said, there are effectively a number of reasons why the judiciary should fairly represent the society it serves, and I'll give you some of the ones she's identified. Right? The first is, it's part of being a democratic legitimacy. We can't take the respect of the public for granted. It must be not only earned, but seen to be valid and apportioned. Secondly, why should we have a more diverse judiciary? Because it's about fairness and equality. As a matter of basic right in the society, we should see that reflected in those that decide what happens to us as soon as we walk out the door or go into hospital, or as soon as we wish to leave the jurisdiction, or as soon as we decide if we want to have a right to die or not. Thirdly, it's because if we don't, we are, we are massively failing to exploit the talent that there is. And we need to have the most talented, the brightest, the gifted, able, sitting and making these, these decisions. And then the controversial reason that they identified. And it was because she said that whether you were a woman or you came from a BAME background, that in itself meant that you were bringing additional skills to the judiciary, which otherwise were invisible to the judicial-making process. That doesn't just mean in terms of visibility. It means that if there is a greater equality in those that make decisions, it is likely to be a better decision because we all suffer from subconscious bias. We all have different backgrounds. It's not that long ago that a High Court judge um, maybe asked who the Beatles were. We've not moved that much further on. We've now got an excellent advocate and appointment in the shape of Peter Jackson, who's just gone up to the Court of Appeal, who understand not only what emojis were, but used them, and who also wrote a letter to a child in such plain-speaking words that meant that he could understand the outcome. But that is exceptional. In the main, because of the time it takes to progress, there is still a very significant age barrier between those that make decisions and those that have decisions made about them and for them. So they are why it's important to get this right. So the Justice Committee were full of praise for the recommendations that had been made and the way that they had been carried out. So as we see here, they applaud the fact that there was... um, Let's see, let's go back. There we go. They applaud the fact that the Section 9.4 competition had attracted um, a greater pool of women and BAME candidates. 
They applauded the fact that full-time academics, so effectively a side sweep, had been come into the appointment process through the 9-4 com, uh, com, competition. And this is significant. They applauded the fact that of the recent competition, there was 50% appointment from salaried judges. Now, that's if you go back to... Remember that, that um, flowchart I showed you? And if you remember that in terms of the county court level, there was a higher proportion of women than at any level above... Now, that's significant because rather than going to the county court, for example, being a dead end and not going anywhere and therefore losing that pool, what this competition did was effectively gave gave them the opportunity of moving outside of that pool and becoming um, deputy high court judges. So that is a significant improvement. But what's wrong about it? What's wrong about it is that we are still losing too many able people. Um, 42% of the applicants... 33% of the recommendations, seven points lower than at the application stage. So we're we're losing people. In legal exercises, 20% of the applicants were BAME, just 6% of the recommended number of candidates. Women were a third of the appointees in the circuit judges, but 5% of those, as you can see there, uh, only came from the BAME community. And then... Moving on down, there was no one who applied or was appointed for any one of these roles in 2017 that came from a BAME background. So, as the Justice Director concluded, there's not much to celebrate in these figures. Women, BAME people and solicitors continue to be appointed in far fewer numbers than white male barristers and no mention is made of the social mobility data. There are positive things that are happening. Okay, um, that's because those who are in the profession don't want it to become a sterile, narrow group of white, male, middle class, um, actively practising barristers because that is not what we are and what we wish to be. So just a few highlights. The Honourable Society of Middle Temple, that's where I'm a venture. Um, we, in 2012, set up a project called the Women's Temple Forum which was specifically set up, and not by accident, because it was recognised by Middle Temple that we were losing too many women at the point of 10 to 15 years plus. It was also no accident it was set up in 2012, because that was the year that marked the appointment by uh, Middle Temple of Dawn Oliver as the first female treasurer, and Catherine Quinn, the first female under-treasurer, So you might not be too taken by surprise to think that with those two seminal appointments, change came about, and so they started up this project, which has now been embraced by its sister inns, and so now there is an in-wide process by which more senior members of women in the judiciary come and talk about their experiences to young women, where um, open evenings are held, which is about networking, called backroom to boardroom, to give women the opportunity of potentially moving into the city, and where judges of all levels come to talk about their experiences and to be confronted by the audience about what they're doing right and what they're doing wrong. And that is an exceptional project and necessary because it is part of the way in which you can break down the barrier between those who think they've become so elevated that we think of them as too remote, And in fact, they're not. They are very accessible, and that's why they are judges, because in fact, they are there used to listening and dealing with people's problems. Other association? Association of Women Barristers. Um, The AWB, as we affectionately call it, was set up in 1991 to monitor and represent the interests of women at the English Bar. 
It has done sound work there, not restricted to simply letting us wet the trousers in court, um, but also by being a real thorn in the side of the JAC and the Bar Council and identifying what needs to be done, and also by being a champion as well as a voice and a listening ear to those women who are here at the Bar. And if you're not a member, you should join. There is no minimum age, so far as I'm aware. If you're at Bar School, get in there and learn from the skills of those who um, are already trying to help others who have succeeded. Brenda Hale, I think, is the vice chair. Deborah Taylor, the woman I took you through right at the beginning, who broke down the barriers in the gender divisions of the um, robing room. She's, she was a president up until a month ago, and now Heather Hallett, who I shall turn to in a little while, is their president. So their alumni is simply fantastic, as is the skills they offer. So role models... I've tried to indicate why that's important, but let me just give you some examples of these women who we have who we can only hope to emulate. Let's go back to these redoubtable women from 2011 and 2013. Now, what I didn't read out at the time was what was recognised about their skills and ability, and particularly Miss Bebs um, by the Court of Appeal. The Court of Appeal, in hearing her applying as she was to be admitted to the Law Society, was described by the Court of Appeal thus. In point of intelligence and education and competency, the Court of Appeal acknowledged, Miss Bebb was probably far better than many male candidates. But because she was a woman in 1913, she couldn't be admitted. Now, without women like that putting themselves forward to try to make changes for others, we simply would not have that type of attitude that led to the Sex Discrimination Act being thought of and passed. So all hail Cave and Beb, in my view. Next iconic woman, Dame Rose Heilbronn. I'm not sure if I pronounced that right, but I hope she'll forgive me. She seems to have forgiven many who were um, less senior and able than her for making mistakes. Rose Heilbronn, 1914 to December 2005. She was an incredible woman. And you can learn more about her through a project that I'll turn to later called The First 100 Years. She was one of the first two women to gain a first-class honours degree in 1935. She was the one of only two women to hold a Master of Laws degree in 1937. She was the first woman to win a scholarship to Gray's Inn, the first two women to be appointed to be King's Counsel, the first woman to lead in a murder case, first woman recorder, first woman judge to sit at the Old Bailey and the second woman to be appointed a High Court judge after Elizabeth Lane. What an extraordinary woman. She retired from judicial office in 1988, but not before she had made changes in the law in many, many fields indeed. Heather Hallett, another one of my personal favourites here. Um, I should call her the Right Honourable Dame Heather Hallett, Vice President of the Criminal Division of the Court of Appeal. Dame Hallett was called to the bar in 1972, became Miss Silk in 1989 and a bencher in 1993. More importantly, perhaps, she was the first woman chair of the Bar Council and in 2005 she was appointed to the Court of Appeal and hooray, hurrah, in 2013 she was the president of the Court of Appeal Criminal Division. She is now the president of the AWB and she is someone who, like Brenda Hale, is not afraid to step down from the lofty heights of the fantastic building that is the Royal Courts of Justice to come to talk directly about her experiences to members of the bar, to employ barristers and to go to schools and university. She is simply superb. Helena Kennedy. 
If none of you have met Helena Kennedy, then you have missed out in life. Helena Kennedy is a tornado of charm, intellect, charisma, anger, feminosity, a feminist, and once you've met her, you can't forget her. She is simply extraordinary. Um, Helena Kennedy, uh, called in 1972, Silk in 1991. She's a barrister, a broadcaster. She's a Labour member of the House of Lords. She's rebelled against the whip more times than any other uh, member, so far as I can gather. She's a bencher of Gray's Inn. She's got more appointments than I can possibly list. And I looked at Wikipedia. I simply couldn't have enough pages left on, on my paper to print them out. She was involved in the Guildford Four, right for bombing trials. Um, she's done work on the penile system. She wrote the book, um, I think, Who Framed Eve? But she's done, she was the person who wrote a seminal report about our prison system called Banged Up, Beaten Up, Cutting It Up, published in 1995. She is still there in the House of Lords working on the implications of Brexit. She is someone to admire and follow, and if you can hear her speak, please do so. She came here to speak for the Gray's Inn reading in June of this year, and it's a privilege to hear her deal with the questions that came her way. Her Honour Judge, Anuja Ravinda Deer, QC. Let's bring it back to the basics where I started. In an interview with The Guardian... Damien Gale, who was interviewing, I recorded her as recounting that when she said she wanted to study at university, her teacher told her to aim a little lower and try hairdressing instead. She ignored that advice and she went on to study English and Scots law at Dundee University. She was a call to the bar in 1989, took silk in 2010, 2012 became a circuit judge and now she is the youngest, age 49, and the first non-white person to sit at the Old Bailey. That's the way we need to be going. So, why am I here telling you this? Because I do now fall into that tiny group of elite women who came to the bar from a comprehensive system, as I said, who appear to have succeeded at the bar to the extent of becoming a silk, and I'm a part-time recorder, and I've done it not at the cost of my marriage, and I have three children. And like I said, it, it was because there was no alternative for me. I could not have succeeded in any other profession. My career's advice from the school I attended was that I was bright enough to go and work in a bank, but I couldn't go front of house because I was too gobby. <laughs> gobby works sometimes because what you don't ask, you don't get. And in the world I occupy, particularly being a family barrister, there is less discrimination in terms of gender Family, law, legal aid work has the highest proportion of women in it than any other field. When I go to court, I'm as often like to be against a woman as I am a man. I as often like to lead a man as I am a woman, and I'm as likely, in the main, except in the High Court, to be in front of a woman judge as I am a male judge. It is a very nurturing environment. I have made the decision to become a family specialist because... Although I started off, I said, with the intention of being fighting the right of the individual against the state, I simply couldn't afford to carry on trying to do the work I wanted to do in employment law because I couldn't make ends meet and I didn't have a private income. So in order to stay at the bar, because I was clear that was the only place I could be, I started doing domestic violence injunctions when the government had legal aid for that to be done. And the more domestic violence injunctions I did, the more I observed that the women who came to the courts rarely came alone. 
there was invariably a child clinging to their legs or around their neck or being shushed into the distance by another female relative or friend. And I started to wonder what was going on in those children's lives if what I was reading in their statements was true. And so I started doing child protection work. And once I started, I got hooked. I'd found my niche. And with that niche became a desperate desire to make changes, a desire to do the job to the best of my ability, and a desire to make the changes I could on an individual basis for the clients I have into a broader part of making changes for the most vulnerable in our society, which are children. So now the work I do is nothing I'd have contemplated when I was back at Oxford. Now I am as like to do a radicalism trial, trying to identify whether a child is at risk of being radicalised or maybe within within, um, a radicalised family. I could be doing a case in which I'm trying to understand whether a child has suffered horrendous life um, threatening injuries through a benign cause which is masquerading as physical abuse or I may be having to look at post-mortem pictures of a baby who's died before they've had the chance to live properly to understand why the blood is in their brain their skull and their exonal system and whether they have been brutally assaulted leading to the end of their life I could be dealing with cases acting for um, the most vulnerable in our society who are those who have a disability and trying to work out whether someone who's got a learning disability is nonetheless safely able to parent their child before the state takes that child away. There is such a vast range of work that we do in family law, even within the United Kingdom jurisdiction, before I even start about what you can do in terms of child abduction work, that means that my area of law, I firmly believe, is one of the most vibrant, the most nurturing, the most positive experiences that I, as a woman, could possibly have as a barrister. It is also the area of law which is most funded by legal aid. And it is also, therefore, why the government's cuts in 2011 and 12, which are now having a disastrous impact, not only in those who can't get legal advice properly, One of the reasons why we are not attracting as many candidates as we should do from a diverse background is because those who wish to do the work coming from those backgrounds generally want to do crime and family to make a change. I rang up the Bar Council Diversity Committee Chair this morning and asked what she would want me to say to the gathering tonight about where we're going right and where we're going wrong. Why are we losing women? What can we do to change it? She identified two issues which I think are the ones I'd like you to reflect upon. The first she said was that women needed to be more savvy about what type of careers they wanted when they came to the bar. I asked what savvy means. It's not very deep cross-examination. It's a pretty obvious question. What she said is that women, if they wanted to come to the bar, needed for careers that were effectively chambers-based, paperwork, non-court work, non-legal aid. That is deeply depressing. Why should it be that the only way you can think of a career at the bar is to siphon off legal aid work? And the reason it has to be siphoned off if you wish to succeed is is that legal aid work has all the hallmarks of low income, lack of regard for flexible working, needing to be accessible, and that's exactly where we lose women in the 15 years plus area. The other part she identified was that, in fact, we were doing quite well as women to get 50-50 entry. The most serious problem is that the bar is simply not visible to
to the vast majority of society. It is not simply thought about as a career by most people that are going to comprehensive schools or academies. It's not contemplated as an option, and so before they've even got to think about choices, it's not there as the absolute basics. So there are programmes that are in place in order for things to change and be done, but we need to do more. Brenda Hale, old Hale Brenda, there's nothing more I can say about her. First 100 years, please look, learn and be inspired by the stories they have. More importantly, do this. This is our job. Our job, as any practising barrister, is to make sure that we lean down to support others and bring them up the rungs of the ladder that we have climbed ourselves. And you can do that individually. It really is not hard. You can do it in a number of ways. One, you can recognise that we need to break outside of simply thinking the problem is at the bar, and you need to go and speak at state schools. You need to be visible. You can join a programme which is Speaking for Schools, of which Gresham is a proud member of. And they will send any one person who is a senior within their field to any school within the area that they agree to go to. And they will arrange for that person to speak to the school students. So that what we do from all walks of life, whether it be a barrister, self-employed, whether it be a judge, whether it be an academic, whether it be a lecturer, what you do is you go down and you talk to those year 12 and 13s and you say, hi, I'm here, hi, and this is my story and I want you to know that this is a profession that can do well for you and you can do well in it and this is what we are. And it starts a process of inquiry that just sows that seed of questioning and doubt in that school's mind and that individual's mind that there are things they can do other than, for example, being told to go and work in a bank back of house because they're gobby. You can all do that, and there's not a reason why you can't do You can be an ambassador from your own regard. The other thing we can do at the Barristers is we can, we can understand that coaching women for success starts at the point when they have their pupillage with us. It is part of thinking what the progress of your career is, and it's part of making sure that what you do is visible to young women in chambers by talking about your experiences, by not being so busy you can't pick up a telephone call when they've got a crisis, and effectively by telling them that what they should be doing now is planning for how they can succeed in 5, 10 or 15 years' time, so there is a path that they can see to plot. As Chambers, what we can do is frankly to acknowledge that we're losing too many women, and rather than simply thinking it's a byproduct of a self-employed society where um, everyone's decision is their own, we can acknowledge it and deal with it, and, I think, as Chambers... We ought to advertise publicly what our recruitment rate, attrition rate and loss rate is and that ought to be broken down within disciplines. Because without there being accountability, the bar is spoken of as a whole. I'm speaking here as a legal aid practitioner, but those who have the most money to spend in chambers tend to be the commercial and chancery and admiralty sets. Where is their visibility? Because if what I was told by the chair of diversity what counts is women thinking strategically about where they want to go and what they want to be. Well, that implies as an obligation on the chambers who've got the money, have got the opportunities to put themselves out there. So, things we can do. Open days. Courts have open days. Open days should be linked up with local schools so that those who are there can go along and see what a judge does. It makes it accessible. It makes it approachable. 
Whether you might be there as a defendant is another matter, but you know, it's, you've got to start somewhere. We're all made up of very different um, uh, DNA combinations. And it means that we should be looking and working with university law departments so that those who are at college, before they've decided which route they go, at least have the option. That leads me to the final point, and it's the most critical one, because I've talked about gender, I've touched upon diversity within the limitations of my experience, but the biggest single barrier, other than social diversity in terms of coming to the bar, is the sheer cost, student loans. Because how many of you, thinking of what to do, once you've funded yourself through three years or four years at university, then have to contemplate doing an extra year either as a barrister or a solicitor. If you're a barrister, you then have to do your pupillage. And having done your pupillage, you then need to get a tenancy. And having done your tenancy, you need to set up. That's at least eight years of debt before you start to earn. And so we need to think constructively about how we assist that financial barrier and how we start to break it down because we need to do more to make sure that that financial impediment to our students is not the barrier that stops them, having been bright enough to prove already they can get to university, that they are not equally bright enough to come to this profession, to become part of that progression up the ladder in order to make the decisions for the very people that they come from the background of. So, this slide... And thank Ms. Rimpton here for her assistance in providing it to me. This identifies that whole network of challenge and routes to success or failure that I've indicated to you. It shouldn't be a baropoly. It should be a democratic appointment. It should be a diverse opportunity that we offer to all. But it's not. They're the people we need to be thinking of. And that's a reasonable balance. And that's what we can all do. So, that was the bottom. Let's just get here to the top. Can we just recognise the fact that for someone like Brenda Hale to come as an academic, to come into the Court of Appeal, to go up through the ranks of the Supreme Court, to be our first president, is something we should legitimately hail as a breakthrough. But it should be the marker of change to happen, not simply the recognition that if you are bright enough, you work hard enough and you're loud enough, that you can get there. So, final words. This is Brenda Hale's um, wording on a coat of arms. Now, I did go to a comprehensive, and I've never really mastered Latin, so I'm seriously not going there, which is why I've got the answer here. Women are equal to everything, and so they are. So, thank you for coming to listen to the lecture. I'm glad it's a full turnout. I'm really pleased to see so many young women here as well, and so thank you very much for taking the time to come out to hear me. Um, if you've survived this lecture enough to think that you can come to the next, the next one on the 30th of November is what do judges do in the family court? And that is where, trying to live true to my words, I will be trying to explain to you what you can do to become a judge and what your career path can be and what it's like when you're there. So if you've got the time, please come along. Otherwise, listen to it on YouTube or spread the news because we must get the message out there that people like us can be up here and can make decisions because to lose our talent at the earlier stages is simply not acceptable. So those of you who are here, think about it positively. Come up and ask me questions afterwards and thank you very much indeed for coming.